question of love. Uh, it's an interesting conundrum, you know, being human and being completely open and also working with our psychological defenses. So I'm wondering in your practice, when the Buddhist practice comes in, where meditation comes, how to recognize how to recognize those places where we block ourselves and how to work with that in the practice. So all of us have all kinds of strategies. And a lot of our strategies are around not feeling things fully because it hurts. And the more we wake up to our strategies, the more we have more leverage on how we respond to them. And for me, there was a huge kind of leap of recognition that there were enormous strategies that were operating even after many years of meditation that I was not aware of. So I was describing that I'm a counterphobic fear person. And what that means is I do everything that's terrifying, thinking that I'm not frightened, when in fact it is fear that is motivating me. And it took me many, many, many years to recognize what was actually going on. Because it looked like I was being really brave. But the reality was, is I was actually scared to death. (laughs) So I needed the ground to be able to see what was happening. And for me, what that looked like is having safety that I hadn't experienced before. And the safety that I found was through a deep connection with nature. And so things shifted for me quite dramatically when I went to Australia and I lived in the bush for a few years. And I've always had a sense of an affinity with nature, but I've never been immersed in it quite in the way that I was there. And I felt the land welcoming me, embracing me. You know, the way family gives you cuddles, you know, and says, welcome home. I felt the land did that to me there. And because I felt embraced by the land, I began to relax and trust in a way that I had never done before. And it helped me shift practice from what was more cognitive-based to what was more intuitive and feeling-based. And as I started trusting my own intuition and feelings more and letting attention be more body-based, I began to get somatic readings on things that I didn't have a clue about before. So the safety allowed me to open up layers and the reorientation allowed me to feel things in a new way. And together, it was very revealing about some of the defense mechanisms that were operating through me that I could see the footsteps of the yeti, but I didn't know what was doing it. So since that time, my practice has really reorganized itself around being much more somatically based, really trusting what it is that I feel, and letting my body guide rather than my ideas about how I think it's supposed to be. Because 
you know, I was born with a very healthy sense of will. And from the time I was 17, the only thing that was important to me was being enlightened. Okay? And that motivation was singularly focused in a way that occluded my ability to see many other things that were going on. Just like, you know, the gorilla on the basketball court, you know, you have a team of people wearing white shirts and black shirts, and the instruction is to watch how many um, basket the white team make. And in the middle of this play, they have a, a gorilla come into the, into the basketball court and wave. And you can't see the gorilla because you're focused on the white shirts and how many baskets they make, okay? You know, focused on the sense of being free from suffering. And I miss these huge territories because somehow it wasn't in my definition of what it was that I was supposed to be awake to. And I didn't have the ground to see it. So for me, shifting the focus so that it's more body-centered then has let me kind of come more into terms with what my mechanisms are and how to respond to them with care and kindness. And one of the things that I found really humbling is, is, is that you know we have an idea about who we are. And it's not the truth. You know? Something can happen, and in an instant, we can go into a regression and be in, in, a, in, a, in a mind body of a two-year-old. And if we're relating to ourselves as 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, and what we're dealing with is a two-year-old, it's not going to be very effective. And so, you know, for years I would, you know, basically say, you know, shut up and sit by yourself and figure it out on your own. Well, you know, no, no right-minded person would relate to a two-year-old like that. You just absolutely don't do that with somebody who's two. You cuddle them and you hold their hand and you give them kisses and you go talk to the birds and the bunnies and the grass and the flowers and together you figure it out. You don't leave them by themselves to figure it out. You know? So we have this idea about who we are and we superimpose that idea on top of what's actually happening. And so what's needed is an incredible immediate responsiveness about what's actually happening right now. What is alive right now? And what am I dealing with? Without any sense of, well, it shouldn't be like this. How many years have I been meditating? You know, and how many years have I been dealing with this stuff? And I should be, and I, you know, and I've been doing therapy, and my goodness, and honestly, and it's not helpful. What's helpful is, is, is that there's a two-year-old, and she needs love. And how do we love her? What does she need? And that's immediate. And when I'm dealing with her with like that, then it doesn't take very long to deal with what's happening and to have it come back into a place where I can sort it from a cognitive perspective. But if I'm split where I've got this idea about how I'm supposed to be and the reality and they're not matching up, it can be hours, it can be days, it can be a week before I figure out what's going on. You know? Because I'm not present with what the reality is. 
So part of my learning is to learn where my weak spots are and to learn to bring tools to them in a way which is appropriate. So for a variety of reasons, which I understand, you know, I've got weak spots around anger, around sadness, around abandonment. And when these things get activated, I need to bring extra tools and resources on how to resolve and be present with it. Sometimes I need to give myself permission to allow myself to feel what I'm feeling because the suppressive mechanisms kick in so quickly that they're operational before I even know what has happened. And so when I do that, then I can give myself permission and feel what I'm feeling. And once I'm allowed to feel what I'm feeling, then I'm on the same page with myself, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sounds so simple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering about the importance of having a, a teacher, a personal teacher in this process. Because... If you're all just on your own, recognizing, and it just seems like it would be so helpful. And just in your journey, what that role has been of having a kind of teacher that's, um, you know, that's, that's helping you recognize these blocks and cut through them. Having a teacher that can help is wonderful. But how often do we have that? You know, I mean, even living in the monastery, there were long stretches of time where I didn't feel like there was a person that I would go to who was that for me, mm-hmm. you know. So we have this fantasy about what a monastery is. And a monastery, everybody knows, is perfect. And you have teachers that are perfect and monastics that are perfect and you're surrounded by sangha that's perfect. And this is not the way it is, you know. There were years where there was nobody that I felt that I could talk to about what was going on with me for a variety of reasons. A lot of the times it was my own stuff, but never the mind that was what I was doing with. So certainly if there is a teacher that is an enormous asset to cultivate that and to make use of that and to develop that in a way where you're in that kind of a relationship. But the other thing that can happen is, is that the community can begin to start being a support for each other in ways where you're getting beneath each other's skin, where it is more than just sitting quietly together and announcements about who's doing retreats, but learning who you are and learning what is needed to both give some time out around the negative habits that loop, you know, stopping people out when people are in self-disparaging loops and saying, you know, I'm sorry, it's not acceptable that you relate to yourself in my presence like that. I don't accept that. Stop that. You know? And what is even more amazing is, is that when people get to know each other, they can begin, though it requires quite a lot of trust and permission, to start calling each other out on their blind spots and the stuff that they're not seeing. You know, So we have this imagination that it's going to be the perfect person, the teacher, the one who knows, who's in total empathetic resonance with us, who sees clearly. And yet, you know, maybe there are other ways that also can be cultivated. And one of the things that I experienced living in the monastery with the sisters was is that after a long period of time and a lot of work, the sisters began to do that for each other. 
in a very loving way. And there's nothing that's more valuable than a community of people that support each other in that way. And no matter how much effort is required to get there, it pays off in dividends in gold or diamond. It is invaluable. Because you don't feel like it's just you doing it by yourself. There begins to be a field that's cultivated that you can trust, you can relax into. And certainly, I would encourage any community of people that have a commitment to practicing together to really explore what is needed to begin to start getting under each other's skin this way. To get to know each other. To support each other to find out what's alive for each other and to begin to start pushing those boundaries of where is the trust and how can it be cultivated. And if there is a teacher that you can be in relationship to bring them into that field, but to not let them be the sole focus. You know, I think we're moving out of the big deal dude era. You know, where there's one big deal dude and all the attention is focused on him or her. And it's messy. It's easier when there's just one person. We can project all of our fantasies and neurosis is on them. And you're, you're speaking a kind of a radical way of, of living, really, I think. It's, that's not very usual in our culture to have groups of people that are, have that kind of in, intimacy and trust. It's not that Even usual. In a relationship. It's not. We have this idea of a kind of like nuclear family or nuclear disaster. <laughs> you know, where the primary relationship is up here and then like ten stories below is everybody else, you know? And there's such intense pressure on that relationship to meet all of those needs, you know. And, and you know, the small, wonderful things that come are so important and the little things that happen that are sad are so devastating because there's just like this one primary relationship where everything is happening. And people need to decide, well, you know, is this actually the way you want to live? And if it's not the way you want to live, then is it possible to start building community in a way where there's a little bit more leveling out, where there's nourishment that's coming from other places? And what does it take to do that? I, uh, I really liked the way you described uh, love as being the warmth of emptiness in these two sides. And, uh, and I'm really interested in your journey into surrendering to love and the techniques that you use, say, with loving kindness or with different other ways that you've been finding it especially useful to be more open to that experience. At some point, I had a real clear appreciation that this kind of driven, you know, nibbana or bust, which was like kind of my MO since the time I was 17, 
had come to a, an end point. And at that recognition, I knew that something else was needed. And at, I came into contact with Kuan Yin and some other um, metta practices like Tonglen. And then had this uh, inspiration to take the Bodhisattva vows. And uh, in the year 2000, I took the Bodhisattva vows with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And that and the conjunction of being in the bush in Australia radically shifted my practice from trying to get out of suffering to trying to be present with what was arising. And then from there, it was more a question of watching the resistance, just being very attentive to the resistance. So in every moment, there's a choice between love and fear. Love and fear. There's two choices, there's two paths, there's two outcomes, love and fear. And to constantly look and see which one I was choosing. And then in my own self, I kept having to also see what was resistant in myself to love for myself. So it wasn't only that it was an outward thing, it was also an internal thing. I had huge resistance to accepting and loving myself. Huge. And all of that needed to come into clarity, into focus. And layers of self-doubt and self-hatred needed to be opened up and aired out in the sun and seen for what it was and let go of. Very profound journey. And it's not finished. Last week you said something like enlightenment can't be legal. Could you explain what you meant by that? We have this longing to have structures or community organizations or some kind of a, you know, something that is going to put it in place so that everything will follow, you know? Like even to have a sangha that makes sense or works, you know? If it's just organized well enough, you know? And there's this longing to have have it be embedded in the structure. But you can't legalize for compassion and wisdom. You can't set up a structure that does that. You can have structures that are more wise or less wise, more compassionate or less compassionate, but you can't do it in the structure. You have to actually do it in your heart. Now, you can have the intention that what you do in the structure is not in discordance with your heart. And certainly that had a huge thing to do with why I left England, because we were being asked to support stuff which I could see was harmful. You know, and I'd made a commitment not to do stuff which was harmful. So I was, I was put in a corner and walked, you know? Because for me, I made a commitment not to do stuff that was harmful. That was my bottom line. But, and for me, like the, the vision that, I, that f- speaks itself through me is to allow community to evolve that is congruent with our society now that doesn't put people in double binds where they're supported to be monastics as long as they go along with things which are harmful. You know, to me, it's like, no, that's not okay to do that. But I can't expect that I would ever be able to come up with a structure that's going to create the definition of a wise and liberated group. That, that, that is an internal process which is then made manifest in the, in the 
governance structures and the way people are living with each other. They go both ways. So, for example, you know, you can make a law, you know, patriarchy is outlawed. Okay? We'll just make that law. Patriarchy doesn't exist as an external structure. It's mostly internalized. So no matter, even if we had all agreed that patriarchy was outlawed, it's in here. And unless I deal with it here, it doesn't matter what the law is out there. I'm going to recreate that until I resolve it here. That's why it doesn't matter how brilliant and eloquent the idea is, unless there's a commitment to actually where the tire meets the road, where the stuff actually is embedded, it's just hot air. Unless there's a real commitment to the practice, to seeing where this stuff is alive in each of us and getting underneath it and releasing it, it's just a bunch of good ideas. Good ideas are maybe better than bad ideas, but it's not the whole story. I mean, I, I can go on about, you know, in my experience, the, the strongest caretakers and maintainers of patriarchy are women. There's a reasons why that's the case. But just knowing that's the case doesn't make it not be the case. And so to actually move out of this stuff, which for me is clearly harmful, is not um, just about talking. Does that help make clear what I was trying to say? Yeah. Yes, please. In your poem, you had a, a phrase, a line, that included power over, and then you had a contrast. Do you recall what that line was? No, but I can look. Where power is used over that rather than as a presence with. Thank you. When power is used over rather than as a presence with, to me that strikes to the heart of all that you you've been speaking of. You speak of of love, you speak of being present with suffering, uh, aware, in contrast to trying to escape suffering. Power over would be perhaps one could twist it into trying to control suffering, direct suffering, discriminate the path of suffering or avoid it or whatever. It's this comes from the whole movement of what I've come from into what I feel is needed. And um, we come from a power dominance modeled society. That's the conditioning that we all come from. And, you know, for me, there's a huge difference when the power is a presence with, rather than, rather than a, a willingness or a, a need to dominate or to control, and, and this standing in presence with and seeing what shifts when one makes that commitment. And so it's the way I relate to myself. It's the way I relate to what's arising. It's the way I relate to the world around me. It's the way I write to people. It's the way I relate to food. It's the way I relate to everything. 
And I didn't know that was the paradigm that I had come out of until it became very, very painfully clear. Does that help? Yes, and I'm also reflecting you speak of power over. I also, immediately, I also thought about it. One who wants to have power over others and perhaps others who want to have another who claims power over himself so that one can blame other, one can uh, accuse other of being too dominating, one can uh, excuse self from, uh, from being aware because it pointing at the one who is patriarch, dominant, and uh, saying, you're making me suffer. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it takes two to tango. Yes, thank you. You know, and, you know, what is needed is for everyone to stand in their own power and not engage in dynamics and relationships that are not serving. But it's, you know, it's easy to say that And yet, how many of us can actually navigate that in all of the different areas of our lives with parents and children and bosses and neighbors and government officials and policemen? And and so that is a true statement. We need to stand in our own power and be in relationship with others in a way we're not giving our power over and we're not engaged in harmful relationships. And yet, that's another huge area where the tire meets the road, is to navigate the reality of every single one of those relationships in a way where we are standing true to what is true and not engaging in what is not true. And so, you know, the vision that speaks through me is a Dhamma village where this is the commitment This level of interest is the commitment. No matter what precept level people are keeping, and no matter what role and responsibility that people have, that that is the commitment, to live fully from that place, and to support each other, to stay with that commitment. And whether it happens or not, I think is going to be dependent on whether the there's enough people who feel that it's worthwhile because it certainly is not something one person can do. Thank you. Thank you a lot. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.